If you want to feel hopeful about the future, just ask children what kind of world they would like to see. Imagine a future where there's no plastic in the ocean. What if cars could run on the energy from the plants? Their ideas are bold and fearless. Imagine if clothes had wings and could replace cars. What if the wind was made out of candy floss? Their imagination knows no bounds. Imagine a future where we can eat meat and not hurt animals. What if there were giant flowers that could save the bees? What if golden apples could grow out of trees? I'm Natty Kasambala, and this is Super Futures What If, where I'll be tapping into that sense of wonder, exploring what it's like to dream bigger for what lies ahead. In this series, I'll be speaking with people who are tackling some of our greatest challenges in the kinds of ways that only children could have imagined. From the food we eat and the clothes we wear, to dealing with ocean plastic, we'll be asking bold questions about the future and using the very best of our imaginations to answer them. As we think about what a greener future could look like, how we reduce or even remove the amount of greenhouse gases in our atmosphere is one of the defining questions of our time. But for Dale Vince, an entrepreneur of many talents, it's been his life's work. I like to think that I put the mental into environmental. He founded green energy company Ecotricity before it was cool. Yeah, Ecotricity is the world's first green energy company, and uh, we're about making electricity and gas from renewable sources. He's the chairman of a green football club, Forest Green Rovers. We've created what the UN and FIFA call the greenest football club in the world. And he even started a plant-based food company called Devil's Kitchen. We had the idea to make plant-based school dinners for primary schools, and then it went into secondary schools, universities, and now it's in retail as well, online retail. But it's really his latest venture, Sky Diamond, that I find the most mind-blowing. Sky Diamond is a, is a mad... A concept whereby we take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and we turn it into actual diamonds. So in this episode, we're going to be exploring the all-important question. What if we could make diamonds out of the sky? So I guess I'll just jump straight in. I wanted to start big and ask, when thinking about issues that are facing our climate, why do you think it's so important to use our imaginations? I, I guess it's because ultimately we have to be able to imagine another way to live and, and we need creative solutions to help us uh, achieve that. And a lot of the work that I've been doing with various companies that I've started have been about that, about imagining different ways, for example, to uh, make energy and different ways to travel and different ways to eat. And then we have to communicate that to the bulk of people who, who aren't on that path and whose top priority isn't fighting the climate crisis at all. And we have to convince them that it's not about giving stuff up, this life they need to live, this green life. It's actually just about doing things differently. And actually, if they try it, they're probably going to find that it's better and that they like it. And to take it all the way back now, I guess, to 
where it all started. What would you say you were like as a child? Were you an imaginative child, an inquisitive one? Yes. Were you wondering about the why of the world? Yes, all of those things. And to my parents, a difficult one. But then, you know, that was just the way that it was. I like to make things, invent things, pull things apart. You know, I tried to make all kinds of things that I never had the means to make. And I used kind of uh, batteries from back in the day to power some of them. And they didn't last very long at all. And then you had to throw them away, which seemed a terrible waste to me. So I became conscious of the value of energy at a very young age. I remember being aged around about I don't know, maybe 12, and, and looking at all the cars I could see on the road and knowing that they had about 10 gallons of petrol in each one and wondering how many there were in the country and how much fuel that was and where it came from and when it would run out because I knew that it would run out because I knew that everything runs out. But nobody talked about it. This was mid-70s. So, yeah, I was inquisitive and kind of concerned about sustainability way back. And you talked about leaving school at 15 and kind of, looking outside of the traditional or typical career paths that were presented to you. Uh, what was the next step that you took? The day I left felt like the best day of my life. I felt like I'd got out of prison. I really felt that. And uh, I just enjoyed the freedom of, uh, you know, hanging out with other people on motorbikes or stuff like that. And, and then eventually um, I went to a festival or two and kind of got the idea that um, living in towns wasn't really for me. If I didn't want a job, then uh, it was never really going to work. You know, there's some kind of uh, poverty trap if you're not prepared to get into the groove of things, get a job and and uh, pursue careers and all that kind of stuff. And then I could only really be free if I left towns, stopped living in houses uh, and went and lived on the road. So I spent the 80s, just about the entire decade doing that, living in various uh, trucks and buses and things eventually that I built myself, did a little bit of traveling in Europe and kind of um, just had a fantastic time, learned a lot, traveled a lot, met a lot of people and lived a low impact lifestyle. And what would you say were some of the most valuable lessons or skills that you learned during that period? I think self-reliance. You know, I learned to do a lot of things for myself. I was my own electrician, plumber, mechanic, welder, that kind of stuff. Uh, over in Europe, I learned to play the guitar to busk for a living. Busking is a generous term for it. It was more like begging with a guitar. You know, and, and I had fun and I met a lot of people and it was interesting. Everywhere we went, local, local kids, people would come out to our site to hang out with us. And they all had the same downer on the place that they came from. It was interesting to observe that everybody said the same thing about their own hometown. Mm. They all thought it was rubbish. <laughs> I have to concur there. <laughs> and then I guess moving into your business adventures, in 1995, you started Ecotricity. What experience led to that venture and setting that up? I guess it began... Uh, in the early 90s, I was living on a hill outside Stroud uh, in my trailer, uh, an ex-US Air Force radar trailer that I rescued from a scrapyard, and I pulled it with an old tow truck that I'd built many years previous. And I had a windmill on the roof and some train batteries underneath from a scrapyard, and, uh, and I powered myself with windmill. And so I, I knew everywhere I went, whether it was a windy place or not, I had a meter. I could see what came in. I could see what went out. I was in touch with the energy I was using. And first wind farm was built in Cornwall, I think 1991, I went down and had a chat to the farmer there. And I could see that big windmills were possible. 
And I had this moment where I thought I could spend another 10 years living this low impact lifestyle, or I could drop back in and try and build a big windmill on this hill where I was living and make a bigger difference. So I decided to do that and I fought a five year battle with everybody to make that happen, which led me to 1995. I was about to build the first windmill and uh, I went to see the local power company to say, do you want to buy some green electricity? And they just laughed at me literally and said, well, what even is it and who wants it? And here's a rubbish price, by the way, because they were at that time a monopoly buyer. And I left that meeting deciding that the only way to get a fair price and build more windmills was to cut out that middleman become an energy company, reach the end user. So I formed Ecotricity in 1995. We were the world's first green energy company at that time. Amazing. Um, and obviously renewable energy companies are somewhat more common now than they were back then. But I guess like once you had started that company, what was the resistance like to that idea, the reception? How did you kind of battle the... I don't want to call them prejudices, but the the kind of doubts at the time. Mm. Yeah, I mean, prejudices is, I don't think, an unfair word because I think people carry those with them. But what they really are holding on to is what they know and what they resist, what they're prejudiced against is what they don't know and what they haven't got the imagination to consider, which goes back to your point at the beginning of this chat, the need for imagination. So when I start ecotricity everybody around me uh, was like ah, what's green electricity who wants it you know and i said well i mean <laughs> that's a silly thing to say really because who could want it it's not available so you don't know if you want it until somebody makes it available do you you know and our job would be to make people want it uh, it was the same with building the first windmill on the hill um it was very early days of wind energy. Nobody thought it was possible, especially by a traveler that lived in a trailer and had nothing, you know, no money, no experience, no qualifications, that kind of stuff. But, you know, it's been the story of my journey through business, rescuing forest green rovers and uh, turning the club green brought that kind of skepticism and let's say prejudice out as well amongst the longstanding fans and, uh, and other people in football as well, who kind of looked on it, uh, you know, a little bit bemused, I think at the time. People said to me, football fans aren't going to be interested in this, you can't do this in football. What's football got to do with the environment? All that kind of usual stuff. But if you fast forward 12 years from that rescue mission, what you find today is that our fans have embraced what we do. They're changing how they live. They're going veggie and vegan, driving electric cars. And, and fans of other clubs are saying, well, why can't we have that? And there's this peer pressure from fans of other football clubs to, to bring change to them as well. It's, uh, it's been a kind of revolution from within, which is pretty cool. I think it's really so interesting to hear that kind of I guess like these stories that we tell ourselves about who certain types of people are and what they want and mm. then to kind of see that happening in real time and you questioning and being proven right about you know the, the possibilities for everyone to live a greener a greener life. It's fair to say that you don't know until you try in, in so many circumstances, you know, with people. So, for example, we've been working with the Daily Express for just over a year now, you know, which is traditionally you'd expect a right wing audience. And I'm sure that's correct. Uh, but one that wouldn't be open to like this kind of messaging again, you know, but we launched a Green Britain campaign with the Daily Express because I met the editor and he really liked it and got it. And, and they've just lent into the whole thing. They've had such great feedback from their own readers about that, that they've just done more and more. And I think it was last August, we did a dip test and the Daily Express ran almost more stories on the climate crisis in that month than The Guardian did. And I thought that was incredible in terms of coverage. And, you know, I get emails from Daily Express readers like asking me for advice and things. And, you know, it's just amazing. So another great example of how if you just drop your preconceptions and get in there and, and you know, do your thing, 
you can find uh, receptiveness that you might not have expected. I guess moving on to Sky Diamonds, I wanted to hear a little bit more about the story of what inspired it. It began something like 10 years ago when I was kind of daydreaming, thought doodling about geoengineering this uh, this concept of kind of fiddling with the environment on a kind of big scale to try and suck carbon out of the atmosphere also on a big scale and I thought about the different ways that that could be done and that were being talked about but I was struck by the thought that grabbing hold of that carbon is only half the battle we've got to lock it into something permanent easily moved on from there to thinking the most permanent form of carbon we know of is the diamond And I thought how amazing it would be to make diamonds out of atmospheric carbon, something we have too much of. So it's just that really. It was something that really began as a carbon capture and storage uh, concept and then uh, rapidly turned into something else as I realized that diamonds don't actually hold that much carbon, but the avoided carbon in an earth mined diamond is huge. The environment impact of the mining industry, you know, Mm -hmm. truly is colossal by comparison. Uh, so though it started out as carbon capture and storage, it's not that in a serious context. It is a big carbon avoidance concept. And at the same time, it's a, it's a carbon negative industrial process. I think it's probably the first in the world. It's negative by design, not any kind of afterthought or net zeroing. That's how it is. And that is a great example for technology as it needs to be in the 21st century. In the, in the sense of kind of serving that p- purpose first or alongside whatever it's doing naturally benign industry Mm. so you know our chimney such that we have one puts back air into the atmosphere that's cleaner than the air that we take out that's the opposite of every industrial process Mm. ever invented that's the kind of industry i'm talking about that's benign by design and we wanted to see if you could give us a little bit of a explanation of the process of creating a, a sky diamond for those of us who are less scientifically inclined. Yeah, easy enough. So we have a machine that actually grabs carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. Don't ask me how it works. I just know that it does. And then we kind of put this carbon dioxide under pressure. It turns into a liquid and we store it. We capture rainwater from the sky. We split it with electrolysis to create hydrogen and oxygen, the two component parts of water. We let the oxygen go back into the atmosphere and we keep the hydrogen. And then we feed the hydrogen and the carbon dioxide that we've captured into another process at the heart of which there are some ancient bugs, microbes, that are used to living in super harsh environments and love to eat these two ingredients and produce methane with them. And then we take this methane, uh, we take some nitrogen that we also take from the atmosphere um, and a little bit more CO2. And we, we put a blend of gases into what we call our diamond ovens, which are not very big. They're about as big as my desktop here, like about a meter square, let's say. And at the heart of those, there is a ball of plasma. Now, when I was at school, I was taught there were three states of matter, solid, liquid and gas. There's actually a fourth state that's come along called plasma. This plasma runs at about a thousand degrees centigrade, which is something similar to uh, being near the sun, like the surface of the sun or something like that. And we pump our gases into this plasma ball and we have some little diamond seeds at the heart of this plasma ball, which are like flat, really thin pieces of actual diamond. 
And what happens is the carbon dioxide in our mixture of gases reacts in the plasma and it crystallizes onto the seeds in a diamond structure. It takes about two weeks and then we pull them out of the oven, uh, clean them up, cut them, turn them into stones. My mind is blown. My mind is actually blown. <laughs> How did you go from, I guess, that thought doodle to actually discovering that it would be possible to do something like that? It took a few years and we'd been making these stones for probably um, three, maybe four, and improving the quality from initially brown to now being flawless diamonds amongst the uh, the top 1% in terms of quality in the world, you know, of, of all diamonds, not however they're made in, in a lab or mined from the earth. And what were some of the, I guess, issues or obstacles that you faced in that kind of perfecting process? Although it is a science, it also felt very much like a black art. The the machines themselves are super sensitive to the purity of the gases. We work to six decimal places in terms of purity and having consistency in, in your gas is, is super important and creating a recipe that has the exact balance of components is also super important. So there's a lot of learning by doing and, and rigorous scientific control of what's going into the machine and what comes out of the machine so that we could tweak that recipe and that process and constantly improve it. I guess that just took time. While well, we also learned how to use one of these machines, you know, these diamond ovens and make our own gas in a consistent, uh, almost perfect way. And do you remember any of the first sky diamonds that you held and what they were like? Yeah, I mean, the, one of the first was quite brown in colour and I knocked on the door of a British designer, Julia, called Stephen Webster and uh, went and had a chat to him and showed him what I had and told him how, how I'd come by it. And <laughs> I, I was like, it's a bit brown at the moment, but we can make that better. And he was like, oh no, I love it. <laughs> it was like, it was like, you know, the kids today don't want perfect white diamonds. You know, this is great. And we, so we... Um, we, we were friends from that point and planned always to launch together once we could uh, get ourselves into a place where we were in production and stuff like that. And, and I'm super pleased that in about a month's time, we'll finally do that. We'll launch a range of really special diamond cuts. They're new designs from him, not the traditional cuts of a diamond in some jewelry by him as well. It's a very special range. Uh, we'll get to launch that in about a month's time. And how would you say today that a sky diamond compares not necessarily in like a positive or negative way but how would you compare a sky diamond to a regular diamond in terms of the experience of it well i think um it's it's something that you can be entirely happy with it's a bit like plant-based food you know when i eat plant-based food i feel good i don't worry or feel queasy about or guilty about what i've just put into my body and i think with a with a sky diamond you know you can have this beautiful object, completely guilt-free. Better than that, actually knowing that you've done some good, you have taken some carbon out of the atmosphere. You know, there are no social issues, no abuse of people involved in our process, which is inherent in the diamond mining industry. And the avoided pollution is incredible. I touched upon it earlier. We commissioned a study by Imperial College because there is no data out there, right? The diamond mining industry keep this stuff quiet. And you know why when you find the results. So what Imperial tell us is that for every single carat of diamond mined from the earth, and a carat is a fifth of a gram, right? It's a, it's a little mm. thing. They have to dig 1,100 tons of rock, tons, and expose 30 tons of toxic metal to the atmosphere. 
consume 5,000 litres of water and emit 500 kilograms of greenhouse gas. That's incredible. That's an incredible impact for a tiny stone. That's all avoided. And have you had any kind of, I guess, projections or theories on what the long-term impact is going to be of, you know, subverting the diamond-making industry in this way? Well, I hope that um, there'll be an enormous environment saving. You know, if you take... There are 150 million carats of diamonds dug out of the ground every year, right? And if you take the 1,100 tons of rock for every carat... And you think of Minecraft, you know, the game with those cubic meters or cubic blocks that you build with. Well, if they were cubic meters, you could cover the entire surface of Belgium every year with the rock dug up by this industry. It's a big thing. The holes in the ground are so big, you can see them from orbit. And they're permanent. You know, these are permanent effects on the environment. All of that we could leave behind, which I think would be fantastic. And also, diamonds occur like fossil fuels in particular areas of our world. And so uh, there's a kind of dominance, a monopoly type situation. 30% of all diamonds actually come from Russia, which has been interesting to flag up during this recent uh, conflict out there. But sky diamonds, for example, could be made in any country of the world in the same way that renewable energy can be. So that's like a democratization of this market, Uh, you know, a freeing up of the resource and making it available to everybody. And what has, I guess, the response been like when it comes to sky diamonds once we got past the kind of uh, is this guy crazy and (laughs) we had handfuls of things to show Mm. then it's still a little bit shock really like like is this real is this happening are they real are they actually diamonds and then we move on a little bit from that we've sold a bunch of them now online i think we we had our first sale i think in december last year and we've had three in total Uh, there's an awful lot of interest in them One of the most perhaps uh, exciting aspects is that people have been in touch saying, I would never buy a diamond before because of the the social uh, justice impacts, the environment impacts and stuff like that. But now I can have a diamond and that's quite exciting uh, that uh, that it kind of opens up uh, a new market in effect or or provides for people uh, an ability, a way to have something that they kept away from before for good reasons. Now we're in a place where we launched a campaign with uh, Lily Cole last week. We've been in Selfridges for a couple of weeks now at the supermarket concept. And uh, we launched with Stephen Webster. We're talking to some big kind of fashion brands. And what we're really hoping to achieve is to be the Intel of the diamond world. You've probably seen those stickers on a computer that says Intel inside. The chip inside is made by Intel. It's a kind of ubiquitous thing. We want to be the choice of jewellers world over in terms of what they put in their jewellery. Sky Diamond Inside is what we're aiming to achieve. That's amazing. And I, I definitely hard relate to the um, the idea of I've never been someone who has even considered that I would ever own a diamond. And even just mm. talking to you now, the idea I'm like, oh, maybe I do want to get married. Maybe I do want to get engaged and I can get, a nice, <laughs> get myself a nice ring. Um yeah, that's nice that's incredible. Do you think that we need to issue luxury to live more sustainably? No. And for me, it's like a really big part of our message, really important part of our message, which is to get across to people, and I may have mentioned it earlier, that they don't have to give stuff up. 
to live this way, this green life. It's not about sandals and lentils, though I love both. I always use that as my example because there's too much uh, preconception and prejudice from people that that's what they're being asked to do, give something up, you know, have rubbish cars, have rubbish food, have cold houses, you know. At the extreme, people say, oh, you want us all to live in a cave, you know, which is just silly and extreme. But the um, in all of the work we've done, we've learned that it's important to show that the green alternative is at least as good, if not better, than the current alternative. So we have an organic pitch. It has to be a great football pitch, not just an average football pitch. Our food at Forest Green is great. It's not just average. The bar in football food is, of course, low, so that wasn't difficult. Uh, But everything that you do when you're presenting a green alternative, in my view, needs to be better. Um, and then we can make the case to people that this is this is something that's a better way to live. They aren't being asked to contribute to a global cause at the expense of lifestyle. That's not what's happening. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. And kind of just it's it's a little bit more pragmatic, I guess, with human nature. I think in an ideal world, you know, there are things that we wish people would be mm. able to give up. But, yeah, you mm. kind of have to meet people where they are, I guess. Yeah, definitely. We have like an underlying philosophy that we call another way. It's about finding another way to do everything. And we renamed the road that our football club sits on. It just simply says on the sign another way. And it makes a super subtle but but big point to people that come to visit. Uh, It's all about another way. We can find another way to do everything. And and that's what we're in the business of. And how do you think that businesses like Sky Diamond can... I guess, keep the conversation around reducing CO2 in our atmosphere very much alive and at the forefront, I guess. Uh, Well, I guess, you know, Sky Diamond is like modern alchemy to me. This idea that we can take all of the ingredients that we use from the sky and turn it into this thing that is kind of famously valuable and precious. Uh, I think if we can do that, then we can do anything. And so it's a real hearts and minds kind of evocative uh, piece of science and technology and industry. Uh, and just a perfect example of what's coming and the way that we need to live and, and how great it can be because there isn't anything that we can't do, actually. Uh, and I've seen throughout all of the things that we've done, by by the act of doing them and showing that they work, we encourage other people to do the same thing or similar things because they see that it works. And I believe that there are two ways to bring change to the world. And the first is to do something yourself. And that's the most important, actually, because then you establish the credentials of something. Uh, But secondarily, then, if you can become a catalyst for other people to adopt that, then you can have a much bigger impact, bring much more change, because there's necessarily a limit on what one person or one organization can do. So uh, I see them going hand in hand. You know, you, you start something, you show that it works, that it's a good thing. If other people pick that up and run with it, that's a good thing. Amazing. Thank you so much. I want a diamond now. I'm just like, uh, I'm obsessed. That's so, that was so interesting. Thank you. Yeah, no, my pleasure. Thank you for the chance to chat. This Super Futures podcast series is part of Selfridge's exploration into possible futures, where we'll be trying on new lifestyles and ideas with our brands, future generations, and of course, you. Tune in each week as we speak to people who are tackling some of our greatest challenges in the most imaginative and innovative ways to make the world a better place for everyone. Head to selfridges.com for more enriching stories as we imagine what the future could be. 
This is a Radio Wolfgang production and featured Dale Vince. The producers were Cass Denton and Ivor Manley. The executive producer was Ellie DiMartino. Martino.